Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, and especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the gripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government, but they control our culture. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Pray on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer, because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. It's about time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded our planet with envious eyes. 
Perception is the key, and the heart yeah. is the solution. Heart perception will change everything. I'm Ryan Gable, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on The Fringe FM. If you'd like to contact the show, rdgable at yahoo.com. That's R-D-G-A-B-L-E at yahoo.com. The social media page, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. The network website is thefringe.fm, but you probably already know that. Our website, www.thesecretteachings.info, where you can find our archive, montages, my books, top news, and more, all at www.thesecretteachings.info. Last week, if you tuned in to Lighting the Void, normally hosted by Joe Roop here on The Fringe FM, you heard me hosting the show Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We talked to a couple of guests Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I've never just jumped on a show with no mental preparation and started the show, but that's what we did because I didn't plan to have those guests, so we jumped right into it. Normally, I like to have a little more structure and not do things so so much like I'm firing from the hip. But sometimes that's how you get the best content. And although I like to plan, I also like to just have those types of radio shows with the guest or by myself where I let information flow and I see where the conversation takes us. And over the years, we've probably done a few dozen, maybe a hundred or so, shows on ancient civilization, archaeology. We've interviewed people like our good friend M. Don Shorn, who's authored a number of books on the subject, which also deals with extraterrestrials. And his ideas and his theories are much, much different than what you might associate them with, and that's the subject of ancient aliens. So I always joke with M. Don Shorn when he's on the show that, you know, your stuff's not ancient aliens, right? He's like, no, 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 it's not that. It's I've read all the texts and all these old books, and I've seen his library. And he puts it all together, and he produces uh, material that is really incredible, and it's all sourced, as far as I can tell. And you have a lot of really great researchers like that, a lot of really smart individuals, which, yes, intelligence, smartness can be very, very subjective. And you know about people that are much more well-known, like Graham Hancock and Robert Schock and uh, Michael Cremo, three guys that I think of all the people I've interviewed, I've never gotten to interview these three guys before. I'd like to, though. And you get other people that do their own thing. You might not know a lot about them, but like our friend M. Don Shorn or like our friend uh, James McCanny, And the other great authors and researchers and scientists and archaeologists, we've interviewed Scott Walter a number of times on this show. You get people that come along and they provide you with this mind-blowing, groundbreaking information that, and they make it sound so simple, it's like, why aren't others talking about this? So on the show last week when I hosted Lighting the Void, we got to speak with Jared Murphy. And I had heard Jared's name before, but I never got to interview him. And so we had this conversation. It was really uh, incredible. I I learned a lot from Jared, and we had a a good uh, talk off-air as well. And I wanted to get Jared on the show, so I set it up. Jared's here with us tonight. Jared Murphy, welcome to The Secret Teachings, my friend. How are you? 
And why don't you go ahead and tell our listener base who you are, what you do, and what you bring to the table. Sure. Thank you so much, first off, for having me on and everybody listening. Thank you for tuning in. It's just so great to be on this show. We had such a great time last time, like you said, talking, and it was just a it was really part of it has to be the the questions and the what you actually say to uh, prompt those is invaluable because it's such a broad subject. And so my book, It's Not Aliens Worse, It's Us Discovering Our Lost History, is a product of about four years of research and probably a lifetime of questioning. And it's not my only work. I am working on more and I continue to speak on it. And it's, it is though the first cumulative work for me that covers um, a number of aspects that have been on people's radar about our megalithic ancient past. Uh, Like you said, there is giant cymatic polygonal constructions all over the world. There is genetic things. There's superhumans like Wim Hof and Steak Severinsen. There are people that are manifesting what appear superhuman abilities from consciously controlling their immune system to genetic memory, structured water, uh, consciousness and uh, wave and frequency technology. That all seems sometime random. And what I found right down to the very first thing that I started researching for the book was engineered soil. It's called Terra Preta, but there are different versions of it. It's all around the world. And specifically the Terra Preta, which is, it's a Portuguese word, and it's just what looks to you and I like just black soil. It was found in Brazil, what's considered a wet desert. It wasn't uh, considered an area that could sustain because of the soil makeup life. Yet up to 20 feet deep, this soil was found in Brazil. And it was also found in its identical form in Northern Africa and in Australia. This is not a similar soil. It's the identical soil. So at some point in ancient history, which started off my research, was the look that this engineered soil, which could filter heavy metals, it could filter carbon dioxide, something that a lot of people with climate uh, concerns are worried about. Here's a soil that in ancient times wasn't just to this day, one of the greatest inventions for growing things, but it also had electromagnetic properties. And all of that and everything I've just talked about led to what really was three and a half and four years of work with my editor in total to create a book that if we were just giving it a 30-second elevator pitch is about at least one ancient high-tech human society was on this planet pre-Younger Dryas, which is the term we're given to the great biblical flood for thinking all Western Hemisphere here. And it comes down to the fact that some or all or a few of this ancient human high-tech society survived whatever self-induced cataclysm or natural or war. And to this day, we frequently identify as alien. We either see them in spacecraft, and these are not military UFOs. This is by the United States military's own admission as of last summer. We are identifying either craft or very credible human beings have run into uh, people to them that do not look like they're from this planet. But in all the research I've done, it appears that 
if you were to have control of genes and frequencies and wave technology and you were in machines, uh, UFOs that were taking 90 degree turns and at going from zero to incredible accelerations, the likelihood of you looking like us or changing the human body or continuing to genetically change the human body to fit with the technologies that are not external like a cell phone or a laptop, but internal within your genes, within plants, within soil. This book encompasses the fact that it's likely not alien, but an ancient human race that still may or may not live amongst us, not in the way that we do now uh, with each other, but the way we do with tribes that are all over the planet. We have 150 tribes and we don't make them stop living in the wilderness or in the Arctics or in the jungles or in the deserts. We don't go drop cell phones and laptops all over them and pull them out. We simultaneously continue to advance the way we are. And that, in short, is my idea of a 30-second elevator pitch is to tell you what my book is about. So when you're talking about engineered soil then, this is something that maybe I heard and maybe it was you a long time ago. Someone had brought that up to me or mentioned it, something like engineered soil. When you say engineered soil, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's engineered. It's manufactured. Yeah. Biochar, the modern term. We make them now. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. Biochars. No, well, that's that's what I'm asking, though. It's manufactured. At, at some point in the past, humans, ancient civilizations, someone manufactured this soil as a, a, a means by which to grow things more efficiently. Is that what I'm under, to be understood? Is that what I'm supposed to understand? At, at a at a minimum, it was for the most nutrient-rich soil possible to grow. Uh, for instance, most of our commercially grown tomatoes are grown in Florida. Well, that's sand, and there's not as many nutrients in that as there is in terra preta. So at one level, it was for growing food, but it also specifically filters heavy metals, fertilizers, and carbon dioxide, and has electromagnetic properties. So, so low level currents you could, or what, yeah, anything can be struck by lightning. But the idea would be is that you could put a current through and therefore communications or, you know, different ways and frequencies of different levels. This soil could be used like a giant earth circuit. Like when you look at the Nazca lines and I'm not talking the big animals on the Nazca lines, I'm talking about the 25 kilometer long, doesn't vary an inch left or right straight earth circuits that are there, which have also been tested and found to have arsenic in them and not naturally occurring. So the biochars in this case, Terra Preta is not a manufacturer of, uh, there was a giant, rainforest that got hit by lightning and burned to the ground and then a whole bunch of animals uh, a bunch you know a bunch of things just composted simultaneously with luck in order to create biochars you have to burn so much of one thing and then burn so much of another thing and mix in just like you would get a potting soil from a big box retailer if you're going to grow a potted plant and you wanted a mixture you have to mix these things together. And if all it did was grow good, cool food, great. The thing is, is that these other qualities of the soil are significant. And just, just 
you and I having a soil that grows the richest food on earth, there is actually a black market for terra preta. And from the Ukraine area in Europe, they're called chernozems, which is just another, it's another mixture of engineered soil that, again, you can get illegally out of, and you're not going to know that. I mean, they bag it, they pot it. There are people who intentionally look for it that are just on an organic quest, and they're like, what's the best soil to grow in? And terra preta will come up. And there are brands now that use the word, but they're not making modern biochars. They don't know how. No one uh, poured over scientific papers. They don't know how to make terra preta so that, that is – well, yeah, th that's that's what I wanted to get to is that a lot of times we have uh, ancient artifacts or we have uh, megalithic structures or in this case engineered soil and we look at it from a modern perspective and, and maybe sometimes scientists on TV shows or something like that are being hyperbolic but you hear them say things like we can't manufacture this today we don't understand how this was built. And in the case of engineered soil, that's what you're saying. This isn't something that's easily manufactured today, but there's evidence of it. We see it left over from something in the past. Yeah, and it's 20 feet. In some places, it's 20 feet thick. In fact, there's I don't think there's any confirmation. It's not like they've run around with a core drill and taken samples every few hundred square feet and gone, well, there seems to be terra preta. It's spread out all the way over to X point. In Brazil alone, they estimate the area just based on sampling uh, throughout the rainforest, what they have done so far is to say, well, from what we can see and tested as of now, the estimate is an area twice the size of Spain or Great Britain contains terra preta. And that's a significant amount. Now, you know, there's the Guatemalan LIDAR scans. That's Central America. It's pretty far away. But we didn't know there were 60,000 structures just in Guatemala in 500 square miles. And that LIDAR scan is now hitting on the old tipping point, and yet it was only, you know, it's part of a larger scanning program. But here's Terra Preta, and it's showing up incredibly thick. So it's it, there's two parts, and there's the continued use of it, either after a cataclysm or during the last so many thousands of years where you have maybe the same culture using layer after layer after layer. layer. But one of the things that they found as... They've looked at it, and it's been on the radar of scientists for about 100 years, is that when they look at the soil, it tends to retain its value. A lot of times when you grow, uh, I, I live in the upper Midwest, and there's a lot of farming. Um, I have relatives and family that were in farming where crop rotation is taken for granted. Yet, I, and specifically, I'm in Minnesota, and the guy credited with that is we have, as a kid, we all, a lot of us get taken up to Ramsey, Minnesota, to the Kelly Farm, which is now an experimental farm. Well, the reason the Kelly Farm is a big deal is he's the guy who, pre Civil War, was getting the idea that, well, you got to rotate your crops. It's taken for granted now that the reason you rotate it is because different plants take out different nutrients from the soil. And here's Terra Preta essentially eerily retaining its value where it's giving up uh, nutrients, but it's maintaining itself for indefinite. Some, despite, that's one of the weird characteristics. Despite the crop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that is not as sexy as finding a mummy. 
you know, right, who wants right. to talk? Hey, we're starting out with engineered soil, folks. You know, there's no there's no mummies here. There's well, no uh, pyramid secrets, and yet the cultures that did build the megalithic structures lived amongst and around the this soil that is intentionally created. And again, how do you explain electromagnetic properties? Why would you need that? What what are you either pulsing or at a rate? You know, there's these experiments that have been done with turning on Mozart and Beethoven versus Metallica. And, uh, what are the anecdotal evidence of a plant growing better to Mozart or uh, more sharply with uh, Metallica? There's that kind of evidence. But in this case, there are these specific properties that when you mix them all together, including how big could have a society been where their concern is uh, carbon dioxide filtration? Or is it a desire to incorporate or regenerate that carbon footprint within the soil uh, as part of the mixture? Was it intentional in that it wasn't just filtering what was in the air, but was it doing it to further help either growth or those electromagnetic properties? And this field of research doesn't just include, we're, we're talking just to add one more rabbit hole for the conversation we're going to have is if you're engineering soil, a number of studies came out as I was, I had been theorizing, but I didn't have the research to back it up entirely because they figured out that giant polygonal cymatic, I say cymatic because for instance, Han Jenny's cymatic research in the 50s and 60s led to uh, the study of cymatics, of waves and frequencies. And the, on the simplest level, it's the patterns that a wave or frequency makes. Right. Say you have a piece of t- right? So that's that's just a pattern. But every frequency and wave has a, a pattern, almost like if you go into a toolbox and you wanted a different size wrench or a different size uh or crescent wrench or something that you wanted to adjust is a small, medium, and large, and then you have a range within that, or just even a, a you know, you're going to just work in a car and you've got a ratchet set. Uh, every wave and frequency can be different up or down, and that's all interesting. But these people, this, these studies, are, uh, one of the latest was released in April of 2019, and it's barely made a blip on the radar yet, but it very much explains uh stone spheres and their different sizes, wave resonators. And at the same time, they're looking into metastructures, seismic metastructures. And what that is, is soil uh, being sifted and used with additives, just like potting soil, but adding in nano uh, size, uh, think like uh, jacks and I am way too young to be saying this for everyone who's listening, but think of the game jacks with a super ball that bounces. And then you pick up these jacks, uh, these cross metal bars and the game is very simple. It's very old, but the idea is you bounce a ball, you pick up these little metal, uh, cross pieces, but imagine them on a nano size. And part of their studies are into how do you mute or cancel an earthquake under a structure using nanostructures that are shaped in a way that when a wave or frequency, because that's all an earthquake is. Somewhere in the earth, the theory of plate tectonics, a plate rubs against itself, overlaps, uh, pushes up, pushes down. And somewhere in the earth, relative to your city or relative to your giant megalithic pyramid, 
is an earthquake. And this society and their polygonal, uh, the, which is like a very jigsaw puzzle shaped. Uh, anybody, you guys can look this up. If for those new to this, it's that not only were these giant stones big, but they were fit together in a way where when an earthquake, the wave would vibrate into it, it would move the wall in a way that it would cause the structure to not stress or fall down. But we're discounting until recently, until I think maybe my uh, writing that, I have a background in historical remodeling, which is why this is exciting to me. But the idea is that the soil wasn't just engineered for plants, but that in, for instance, the Giza pyramid, where everyone likes to go on about as one example of polygonal construction in the shape of the blocking is that despite its size, it hasn't uh, shifted down or off. It's right now, based on our measurements, we say that it's about a half inch off level. And that's a significant achievement. And anyone in construction can tell you that when you go to build a home that you live in, in order to build a foundational wall, whether you live in an area with a basement or a slab, you're supposed to pre-compact the soil. So say you're building a pavered patio with just the little bricks. You have to dig out all the dirt, and then you walk around with a hand tamper or a gas-powered tamper, which is really just a big 80- or 50-pound weight, with a gas motor that causes it to tamp the ground so that all the black dirt that's left now about 12 inches in the ground, say you're building that pavered patio, it packs the dirt really tight to the point which it's supposed to be 90%. And then, which because no one's actually measuring this or testing it, then you put in rock, like a dirt road, uh, that's called class 5 gravel, and then you pre-compact that. And when you start, the gravel's probably fills up your 12-inch hole that your 10 by 10 maybe patio is going to be built in, and then you pack it down, and then you add sand, and you pack that down. And at the end of the day, you put on your pavers, and you have a patio, or you build a foundation in the same way where you tamp the dirt, put in the class 5, put in the sand, you tamp each layer, and when you're done you're supposed to have a 90% or more compacted surface that you then pour the concrete on. But look around the world, folks. We have tens of millions of billions of tons of cymatic polygonal blocks that are anywhere, like in Baalbek, Lebanon, they're, a th they're well, the ones that are built under the structure, they're 900 tons to, to 1,600 tons in the quarry. And then you have them all around the world where... I don't think the issue is just pre-compacting them. We don't have currently core samples of the material itself. So the the Pandora's box and the most important thing about this sexy engineered soil is that it's not just for growing or filtering. It's also that the structures, and I'm not talking biochars, I'm saying that if there are engineered biochars, which are all over the earth, in areas that were, according to the current paradigm, just nomadic peoples or areas that were not founded until after this engineered soil is hold there. That, hold that thought, Jared. We're going to go to break. We'll come right back and we'll jump right back into it, all right? Sure. All right. Jared Murphy is our guest this evening. It's not aliens. Worse, it's us. That's the book. You can check it out. It's not aliens. Worse, it's us. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. Again, Jared Murphy with us. There's a lot more after this. Stay tuned. Get out a pen. 
a pencil and a piece of paper and take some notes. I think it's pretty fascinating. We'll get more into the engineered soil and other subjects tonight with Jared. Stay with us right here on The Fringe. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Want more of The Fringe? Check out thefringe.fm for more information on your favorite shows. Also, don't forget to check out the Fringe mobile app or the other ways you can tune in through the Paranormal Radio app and talk stream live. Where the normal and paranormal collide, it's the Fringe FM. This is The Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email rdgable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesecretteachings, or our website, thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to hear more of The Secret Teachings, if you missed a show or part of a show, sign up to the ever-expanding archive at thesecretteachings.info. When you subscribe for a month or a year, you get access to the full show archive to every show after it airs. You can download and stream unlimited episodes and share your login with friends or family. With your subscription, you can also get access on the website to all of Ryan's digital books and the ever-growing montage archive. Just visit thesecretteachings.info and click on the Donate Subscribe tab at the top of the page. Use the secure PayPal link and start your membership today. By subscribing, you support The Secret Teachings, The Fringe FM, Ryan, and yourself. Alex Exum. My name is Alex Exum, and you're listening to The Fringe FM. Calling all witches, warlocks, goblins, and ghouls. Join us for a two-day Halloween extravaganza featuring the biggest names in the paranormal universe. Friday, October the 30th and Saturday, October the 31st. Get your tickets before they sell out at thefringefest.com. That is thefringefest.com. Trick or truth, the choice is yours. So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on, 24-7, with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online, or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. You're listening to KTLK Digital Broadcasting. May I have the password, please? The Fringe FM. That's right, sir. That is the password. I'm Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero Radio, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Ryan Gable, your host, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings on the Fringe FM. 
You can check out our website at www.thesecretteachings.info. Send us an email at rdgable at yahoo.com. And find us on social media at facebook.com forward slash thesecretteachings. Our guest this evening, Jared Murphy, the author of It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. We talked about engineered soil in the first segment. If you're just tuning in, if you missed any of that, and it might sound a little bit boring, but when Jared describes it to me, I think it's really interesting for two reasons. One, it's evidence for what a lot of people otherwise are looking to the ancient alien theorists for. And two, because over the years I've heard this question asked, Jared, well, if there really is an ancient civilization, if there really is something that's you know still... In existence today, people, things that might look like aliens, but they're really ancient humans. And the question is asked, and I think it's the wrong question, where do they live then? Where are they hanging out? Are they inside the earth? Are they on the moon? I don't think that's the right question to ask because we don't have the information for that. The point is, you're finding evidence and you're presenting a theory based on that evidence. And you're talking about engineered soil. You could be talking about anything. But there are a lot of researchers, a lot of scientists, archaeologists that have a theory that if you don't understand the details of it, it sounds wacky and crazy. Then you listen to them speak and you find the significance in what they're saying. And it just reshapes the entire field or multiple fields and it redefines human history. And it might seem like that's difficult to get out of engineered soil, but I think that you I think that you've done it. I hope that's an exciting start for everyone because I think we all have to be, no matter where our theories are now, we keep getting these snapshots. The The evidence of this advanced society is there. And again, people love to jump to the idea that it is from somewhere else, uh, not from our solar system or not from our planet. And the it's easier to consider that. It's harder to look at it and go, oh my gosh, we, we are not at the highest human epoch of, of technology. And this is one of those cases where engineered soil, and what I was getting to is the implications are, the assumption is, well, if you dig and all you find is dirt, that's all there is. Well, the Pandora's box that gets opened then is where we were leading to right into the break, which is, well, what does that engineered soil look like when it comes to the possibility that it affects the very foundations and the very field, even based on these corresponding meta structure papers? And it's not just a five scientists one time. They've been messing with the idea of the research has shown that the towers you build within a whole city metropolis, the trees, the soil, its placement and location all affect how it mutes either surface areas or underground like stone spheres. Uh, if you place them at the correct level and size and shape, they will act as wave resignators. So when it comes to the soil itself, the assumption that uh, well, that giant Ollante Tambo, Tiwanaku, that uh, Saksewaman, uh, pick an ancient site, whether there or I can just say Egypt and the Giza and Lebanon and Baalbek and, and again in Greece and in all over the world, uh, Angkor Wat. There are all these places that you have. Uh, Easter Island has polygonal construction. All of them 
have these walls that if they do exhibit this cymatic polygonal construction and then one of the one of the things that we've always talked about is keystone cuts uh you know david hatcher childress that was just on your bumper there he talks about the keystone cuts and there's photographs all over the world and i talk about them in the book that why are there keystone cuts if there wasn't a reason to connect uh these giant megalithic blocks Elect- electromagnetically for frequency and wave resignation and how would you communicate to a structure that's in soils that had of course electromagnetic properties and we can theorize on it but one thing we don't need to theorize on literally haha set in stone is the foundation itself and one of the things that we look for in all this ancient technology as we talk about like you said we don't have the machines to even calculate why uh, a certain building would require different size blocks at different locations based on, I can tell you structurally from a, I am not a structural engineer, but I have been doing historical remodeling for 20 years. And part of that is doing weights and uh, accounting for structural loads with architects and engineers and specifically an engineer's job. When you have a building that has different cymatic polygonal shapes within these ancient structures, it would also include what are the loads on the structure. So every time everyone looks at these old structures, one, they've been adapted in the last few thousand years, so there's some blurred lines there. Two, you're not looking at the finished surface. Three, the wood, metal, and structure that could have been on these structures to heights unknown, we would not have that material anymore. But what we do have are keystone cuts, which is metal connecting a lot of the polygonal blocks on every continent. And then we have this engineered growing slash electromagnetic slash heavy metal, dirty water filtering soil, but it's not the only kind of soil. Soil engineers and scientists have looked at Terra Preta because of its growing properties and these other properties that are relational to modern crop production that we need modern biochars. However, under these giant constructions, Our core samples, I described to you using a simple tamper to build a foundation, to pour a wall that you hope would stay level over 20 years or 100 years. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there and also ourselves where 120 years old is an old home now. If you're on the East Coast, uh, there are homes that are 300 plus years old and they do exist with half the bark on a giant beam that holds up the middle of the house. But are they level? Are they square? Are they plump? They're, they're barely able to do that over 100-something years, yet here is structures that if you were to pre-compact, it just basically the tools to build a cymatic polygonal wave frequency controlling wall like a megalithic block is complex. And the core drills and the things that Flinder Petrie, Flinders Petrie in the 1800s or Christopher Dunn found in the – or references – in reference to the Giza power plant in his book, the the actual machines to cut these hard, 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 hard stones and quartzites and uh, basalts with the equipment that we don't have access to, the equipment to pre-compact what could and should be studied in the soil itself under these structures could be literally as exciting or more so to your point than finding King Tut. 
So for with, all these reasons. So you're looking at the structure and the structures, these structures all throughout the world are incredible, no doubt. But it's taken our attention off of the structural foundation of what they're built on, which is as perhaps if not as more important than the structure itself in terms of evidence for something highly advanced, human civilization, whatever you want to call it, being responsible for the construction of the foundation and that structure that has weathered time for, depending on the structure, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of years. And if that evidence is right in front of us, is it just a matter of simply overlooking it? It's that simple. Nobody ever thought to look at the soil but you and maybe one or two other people. Or is it something that archaeologists, uh, forensic experts, etc. know about, they just choose not to address it? What's the reasoning? Why? I mean, this, sound, this sounds so simple in a way, but why is this not widespread information? I, I think that it goes back, to, and it's something I, I do talk about that people can get out of our conversation, but also in the book, is that the history of archaeology, uh, the father of uh, South American archaeology, Max Uli, uh, he's German, and he talks about, kind of surmises it quickly, and I, I, I want to reference him because it's uh, an interesting field in that we didn't care about what we found. when. We, we think that at some point that the past was valued, and there are references to Stonehenge, for instance, and other archaeological sites that throughout history have been readapted by many different cultures that right. they mystified, like, you know, like the Druids at, at Stonehenge. They mystified a site that they used for rituals and purposes that are a thing because they used it for thousands of years, and it, that's a thing. But it's not the original purpose of the site. No one was trying to preserve it. The original focus on archaeology was finding artifacts that would look cool on your Victorian mantle, if we're making a short point, which is you're going to go out and the antiquities, literally, it was art. I think a lot of people went to college or have heard of art history. That it, how, how, have you ever wondered why? Like here in the Twin Cities, we have MIA, the Minneapolis Institute of Art. It's an incredible, free, fun thing to go do and see everything from Rembrandts to mummies. We actually have a mummy, and we have uh, Spartan war helmets. And the point is, is that why is that art? That's history. But we actually have a study of art history, and that's because when people went off to find these things, and God forbid, and I can't, I can't believe this was a thing, but when they really started going at Egypt again after Napoleon in the 1800s, there was, it was a popular thing to do for people to get together in America and go to a mummy unwrapping. They, they would just throw away or burn the bodies. And a mummy unwrapping, there, there are chemical residues, there are techniques, there was writings, there was... We lost history because it was popular to unwrap a mummy. So even within the tangible living period of our great-grandparents, we have been abusing our past for the sake of it being uh, looked at as art. Art or, enter not, or entertainment. Right. Yeah, and so here we are with—you have Greek archaeologists 
finding ancient temples, and I wish I could remember the gal who wrote on this, but she was the first person. I was I was just fascinated by it. I think it was as early as the 90s where she said, you know, the Greeks may have been the first archaeologists, that they would find a mastodon bone, and they would go, this must be a bone from a young titan, and bring it to the temple of Athena or fill-in-the-blank temple, and they would worship and they would have like a relic in the Catholic Church. They would have a relic of the Titans or a relic of a god, but it was really a dinosaur bone. But when early archaeologists started digging up Greece, because that was one of the first, again, and also think Western archaeologists, because you know there's been this massive divide in what we dialogue about from the West and the East. You know, everything in the East is some silly stuff happened over there, but we know everything started in the Fertile Crescent, i.e., the Garden of Eden, i.e., the Bible. Everything is everything important happened here in the West, and so of course you would naturally go to the Greeks next because it was very important. So that's a side note. But here we are with the Greeks, and they're throwing away. Early archaeologists are throwing literally off a cliff. They're like, there's all these bones in here. We're looking for statues. We're looking for altars. We're looking for the pillars that fell down from this building. They didn't care about the bones. They were throwing them out because there was no jewels. There was no they're looking value. For, they're, yeah, I was about to say they're looking for valuable items, valuable artifacts, yeah. things that look cool. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to look good in a museum. It's like, well, here's another half of a bone of something. Who cares? That's not going to draw visitors for a antiquity collection in the British Museum. You know, I, I've and never— I'm not, uh, Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I've never really thought about it that way um, in, in great detail. It, it just kind of reminds me—I I like a lot of old movies and stuff like this. It just reminds me of this scene. You ever seen The Great Outdoors? With a, oh, I have. It's been a while. With John Candy John, and yeah, 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 and uh, Dan Aykroyd's in it, and just the the image I get is like they're sitting on the porch, and Dan Aykroyd is he's this businessman, and he's explaining what he sees out in the forest. He's like, I see undeveloped resources. I see you know a paper mill, a mining operation, a green belt. He says, I see all this stuff, and he turns to John Candy and he's like, I ask you, what do you see? And John Candy says, I just, uh, I just see trees. And that's kind of what I think of, of like the ancient alien community. Like, Jared, you're here with barely a breath explaining engineered soil and making it interesting, at least to me. And we turn to others and we're like, now what do you see? And they say, I just, uh, I just see aliens. You know, and it's, that's how I see this field nowadays. It's just everything is aliens. Even when you say it's an ancient civilization, then you get the response, but aliens still could have built it, right? I hear, uh, I hear that all yeah. the time. Aliens still could have helped those ancient humans build it. But it's, you're giving all this information from your research, and there are others, you know, all these people we've named, and they've likewise found incredible, incredible things. And not in ways in which they're looking for valuable items, per se, in the sense they're looking to put something up on their mantle. They're finding incredible history that redefines history on a yearly basis, and we throw out the, 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 the history just like those archaeologists in Greece were throwing out the bones because it didn't seem valuable. We throw out the items, we throw out the history, we throw out common sense. We throw all this out because there isn't some kind of economic value or visual value. And when you move beyond that into the work that you've done, Jared, I find the intellectual 
and the conscious value in what you're saying about engineered soil. And to me, whether aliens are involved or not, it's as or more fascinating than all the ancient alien stuff. Because it's kind of like evidence for what those people are interested in. It's just a evidence of something a little bit different than what the conclusion is, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's uh, the world of nanoarchaeology is where it's going. It's, it's going to be a field that it doesn't exist, really. It's going to have to. Um, people put things under a microscope all the time, but this is a case of uh, a clear indicator of what could have been possible with the not just waves and frequencies for earthquakes, but for communication or sending energy or, again, a more conscious connection, maybe even directly to a human being. I do get into genetic memories and get into the idea of they're not just what we look at as technology as an external device like a laptop or a cell phone. We're not really considering there's no playbook that says there should be 86,000 woolly mammoths and 52 billion mosquitoes, and that's a perfect planet. There's there's no uh, a design around that where we tend to see nature when there was once fields and fields. Like you said, how, how would you said something earlier about how could we miss an advanced group of humans? Well, I don't think we're missing them. A lot of times people will say, I saw an alien. And I saw a flying saucer. I saw an unidentified object of some kind, yet it took satellite photos just two years ago to identify a super colony of penguins in the danger islands of Antarctica, which apparently, despite all the love of penguins and all documentaries about them and saving their little babies. And Happy Feet, the, the movie Happy Feet, yeah. all this stuff, yeah. They, they yeah, missed yeah. them. Nobody noticed, nobody noticed. 1.2 to 1 point, give or take, they say, 1.5, 1. 1. Up, up maybe up to 1.7 million penguins hanging out on, on the danger island. We didn't notice that until just a couple years ago. And then I like to bring up the tree Hyperion, which is a redwood. And if you look it up, National Geographic has done some incredibly gorgeous photos on it. But this tree, uh, which is, by the way, why Dan Simmons titled Hyperion Hyperion. It's not about the tree, but just to geek out, he named that whole award-winning sci-fi book series because of that tree. And uh, the tree is a redwood that stands at 379 and a half feet. And there's been, as everyone knows, a lot of logging in America. And we logged for a very long time. And when you see Hyperion, it appears that it's around a lot of short trees and it looks like a big tree, but it's around a lot of short trees. The, the trees that it's standing around are 80 to a hundred plus feet tall and they look like scrub brushes. But this is a tree, a redwood that would have been typical of a range of trees that would have populated the entire earth. And we assume, well, that's just a natural random mother nature thing. Well, one of the things I found in my research is Prior to Sequoia, which is, uh, we all know of Sequoia National Forest, there were meta-Sequoia. And yeah, now, Jared, you're talking hundreds of millions and billions of years of history. Yeah, but interesting thing. One, we don't have a complete fossil record. That's true. And we may not know because of that. But of the people who have looked at 
these fossil records of these ancient trees, we do know that the sequoia were in North Dakota and were across the United Well, basically, as far north and south that you could grow a tree through the middle map of the a flat world map all the way to Siberia and back to the California coast. And mind you, we're talking about the coasts as we see them today, not as the coasts would look. I'm not talking, let's go back to Pangea and everything's moving away. But yeah, we had stuff then. I'm saying that the map of the world as far back as engineered soil, cities off, like for instance, the city that's buried off the coast of Cuba in 2,300 feet of water, there are other underwater cities that give us a more complete snapshot, including this tree map that shows massive trees populating the planet where if they were laid out right with engineered soil, and if you're in a society that can move a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 ton, and that's not just move a single entity or item, it's shape a block of the hardest quartzite or basalt or, or some kind of a, a granite that has so many sides on it and fits together with not even a piece of paper going through it to read and counter and balance an earthquake specifically where that building is, it would be easy for that same society to move, shape, and carve wood out of a 380 foot tall 60 di- 60 80 diameter tree that they're growing for production that's a side note but the idea that we again think of technology as a saw to cut down a tree or a plant to be harvested by a you know just a, a combine or a tractor or a human picking it we we don't have our eyes entirely trained to see that even though a site, an archaeological site, whether it's in Greece and has been readapted or by the Mayans or anywhere around the world, including Egypt, the very foundational structure, which goes undisturbed for the most part, could yield through core samples an indication that not only is the pre-compaction to set these cymatic polygonal walls on unique, but the machines that could pre-compact the soil or the actual structure of the soil itself, not some special tomb like King Tut or some famous uh, just uh, Emperor Chin's tomb that hasn't been opened in China that's just sitting there. The reality is that so much could be discovered just from the actual nanostructures within the soil of the foundation of these structures and the soil immediately around it, that it could be giving us a show map, not just like LIDAR of an existing footprint of a society that may have existed uh, or readapted, granted, like the Guatemalan LIDAR scans are showing us super highways and forty to 60,000 structures, including hundreds of pyramids that are unknown pyramids that are above but buried in trees the lidar is exposing that but in the soil research back to sexy soil we could be talking about a structure where the only thing left like in costa rica where we're pulling up these stone spheres that they're not natural concretions but 
part of wave resonating technology that would be implanted and sifted into a structured soil, an engineered soil, to not only mute, but continue amplifying or continuing a communication of a wave or frequency technology. You can go back to a site now, is what I'm saying, that may have only had wood structures from great forests over tens of thousands of years that no longer exist, areas that we thought were nomadic. One, do we find an engineered soil that you would grow something or communicate or have an electrical current through? Two, is there maybe no longer a building other than maybe three blocks left or there's maybe some paleoanthropological drawing of the 17 or 18, even the 1700s that shows, uh, I can think of some that were in Egypt, like the Giza Plateau, we think the three pyramids, but there there are drawings and uh, early paleoanthropological evidence of five or seven other pyramid structures. Were they ancient or dynastic? Can't answer that. But now, if we consider the pre-compaction of large megalithic buildings, we might notice a pre-compaction in areas, if we see the engineered soil, we could start building a map of where these buildings might be. And a lot and of that, what they, I think a lot of that has to do with having our eyes trained and our perception of what we consider to be important evidence of whatever it is that we're looking for. Because if we're looking for aliens, well, then everything becomes ancient alien theorists believe this. What if this is a possibility? When you look at the evidence that's there and then create a theory around the evidence rather than create evidence around the theory, you come to more, I think, incredible conclusions like the work of Jared Murphy, our guest this evening. We'll be back with Jared in just a moment right here on The Fringe FM. This is The Secret Teachings. I'm Ryan Gable. Don't go anywhere and don't forget to subscribe to the archive at www.thesecretteachings.info where you can get access to all of the shows and the montages. My books are also there as well. www.thesecretteachings.info Jared's book, It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. You're going to get it on Amazon and other places. Books are sold. It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. Discovering Our Lost History. More with Jared Murphy after this. Hey guys, it's Giorgio Tsoukalos from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. You are listening to The Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email rdgable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings or visit the website at www.thesecretteachings.info you could listen to this and that show is now running all day friday and all day saturday on history channel which is really amazing since i don't know if there's any other show on tv that's doing that right now so i hate this channel or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week and join us to explore the outer limits and quarantine zones of history, symbolism, parapolitics, myth, and more. We don't have insiders or some galactic confederation ambassador, but we do have books, memories, critical thinking skills, 
and an ability to recognize patterns. And we also know a little bit about a lot. But don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm a last of a dying breed, a generalist. Find the Fringe.fm Monday through Friday for new episodes of The Secret Teachings or check out TalkStream Live in the Paranormal Radio app. Visit www.thesecretteachings.info to subscribe to the entire show archive so that you can listen, stream, and download every episode after it airs. Subscribers also get access to our montages and digital books. www.thesecretteachings.info and The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on The Fringe FM. Don't settle for less. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence, David has no evidence, but... I hate this channel. Are you ready to explore the unknown and the secret teachings? Do you have everything you need? I've got my secret socks on, and my secret TV, and my secret TV channel. SpongeBob sounds ready. Are you? Why listen to the Fringe FM? We are your number one source for talk radio the mainstream media won't touch. Joe Root brings you everything occult with lighting the void. Ryan Gables shatters paradigms with esoteric knowledge on the secret teachings. Gigi and Cortana explore the inner workings of our reality with Shift Happens. Jess of the Rogue Report brings you years of research to explore the hidden facts behind alternative topics. And myself, Alex Exum of Live Talk, the so-called Joker in the deck. We are The Fringe FM. Do you like The Secret Teachings and Ryan's passionately balanced approach to subjects from food and health to the entertainment industry and the occult? Then check out Ryan's books, available in PDF and softcover with free shipping in the United States. For a practical, balanced, and unique look at the food industry, vaccinations, the theories of disease and geoengineering, grab a copy of Food Philosophy. For a deeper look into artificial intelligence, UFO cults, black goo, and packs made with the devil in the music and entertainment industry, have a look at the technological elixir. Or look for Ryan's masterpiece, Occult Arcana, an encyclopedia of occult knowledge spanning from mythology and science to symbols and sigils from ritual magic to voodoo, and from comparative religion and psychic abilities to paranormal activity. All three books can be purchased on the website at thesecretteachings.info, where you can read reviews from other authors and radio hosts around the world. Just visit thesecretteachings.info. What happens when you bring the Fringe FM together with the world's leading paranormal experts and influencers? What if no topic was off the table, including paranormal events, conspiracy theory, witchcraft, psychic abilities, astrology, ufology, and more? And what would happen if you broadcast this event in crystal clear video live around the world, allowing viewers to interact with their favorite presenters? You would have created the monster that is the Fringe Fest 2020. Two nights only, Friday, October 30th and Saturday, October 31st. Go to thefringefest.com for more info. Get your tickets today at thefringefest.com. That is thefringefest.com. Trick or truth, it's up to you. Join me on a journey where getting lost is the only true destination. Where happiness is an illusion. Here, where the past, present, and future all coexist on the same timeline. Welcome to a future where our true re- reflection is only revealed once the screen goes dark. Welcome to the darkness. I hope you find it.
enlightening. This is KTLK Digital Broadcasting, where the normal and paranormal collide. It's the Fringe FM. This is John B. Wells of Caravan to Midnight, which you can find at caravantomidnight.com. And you're listening to The Secret Teachings. This is Scott Walter, host of America on Earth, author of The Hooked X and Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers. And you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Ryan Gable, your host, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on The Fringe FM. Tonight we're talking with Jared Murphy, the author of It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History. You can get a copy of that on Amazon, and I believe other places books are sold. It's published by another friend of ours, Olaf Phillips, the editor and the publisher. It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. Tonight, we've talked about a number of subjects that personally I find interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I grew up, Jared, in the the development of a cultural and social interest in the subject of aliens in regards to their ancient presence. And so I grew up watching ancient aliens. I mean, that show's like, what, 14 years old now. It's pretty incredible it's that old. I would watch that show when I was a kid. I'm 29, so that came out a long time ago. Um, And I would watch it as a kid, and I watched it as I got older. And it's not that the television show, like, there's something, like, I hate it, and I hate if you're on that show. No, it's just, I think that after season one, they started to stretch, and they've stretched it into something that's just pure entertainment now and pure speculation. Is it entertainment? Yes, Is there really good information? Sometimes. The point is not to criticize ancient aliens. It's to look at that community that I've been heavily involved in, that I've kind of divorced myself from, and to see that there are really great researchers and authors, people that are actively in a field, and others that are simply researchers from the outside looking in, putting pieces together. And you start to notice, Jared, that there are some, and I don't, they're not like trying to rip people off. They're just, they found a niche in a market and they're using it because that's their specialty and they're able to become popular, go on a lecture circuit, sell a book because of that. And I've noticed that that's kind of what you were saying archaeology originally was this basically a sport, an art. You go out and you find things that, oh, that would look good on my mantle over my fireplace. Well, today it's kind of like that's how the market research is done for these new subjects. So at at one point, it became popular to talk about ancient civilizations and aliens in Antarctica. And now almost every conference you go to, every radio show you listen to, everybody wants to know about Antarctica. 
It doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter if the evidence is simply, hey, I have some insider that told me this. And I'm not talking about an individual. I'm talking like this is prolific throughout this community, if you call it that. That they find something that works, and then because you need money to promote, you know, your research, then you follow that, even if it's, you know, asinine or absurd, or there's a little bit of information, but it's not necessarily that credible. And a lot of information gets lost along the way. I like what you said about how those archaeologists in Greece would just go through and look for statues, and they'd throw out all the bones and the things that were really important. And I think we've done that in a cultural and a social and an intellectual way even, today, in the 21st century, in 2020, in October of 2020, we do that now. Because if it doesn't sell a ticket and it doesn't sell a book, well, then we don't want to promote it, we don't want to talk about it, because no one's going to buy it. And if you want to become famous and popular or you want your message heard, it could be a really good message, you have to sort of toe the line of what the market research says. Does that make sense? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think speaking to that point, I mean, backing all the way up to the, I think Ancient Aliens, the first season, and like you said, based on the number of years ago, it's if you have no uh, knowledge of the idea of an alternative history beyond everyone 50,000 years ago was in loincloths, and then we built a bunch of big stuff because, you know, in between hunting and killing, it was, shit, let's build a giant pyramid. And ancient aliens comes along and just the width and breadth of what was out there that first season, I think is a great roadmap, a lot of information there, but like all shows, I think that as you revisit uh, each site and creating content, I think for any show, a success is, and I don't know anyone. Uh, I've, I've met a few of the gentlemen uh, from the show, but I am in no way connected to the show for everyone out there. Uh, what I, what I, cause what I'm going to say is that it is a very successful show. They've done well. Uh, but like you said, where's the information and what's this fear about there constantly is a make the facts fit the theories. And if the facts don't fit the theories, throw out the facts. And I got that more from Michael Cremo than myself, but it's the point is that you want to create content where people want to keep uh, if you're going to monetize it, here's this thing where if you don't come up with something sexy or interesting or if it's not fitting a narrative like, uh, hey, now we're going to revisit Admiral Byrd's trip to South America, that there's going to be this uh, find of uh, hollow earth and that there's a cave and and there was and the, this is the documentation. I know that's probably further down the rabbit hole than we needed to go, but then people get to a conference and they want to hear the latest thing. Well, that's not the latest thing. It doesn't need to be the latest thing. We need to be willing to, one, pay archaeologists to not find things, two, the facts, not the theories and then they have to be paid to fail that uh, as in the fact that they might have a scope of a, a site and that they have an idea of what they're going to go dig up and then when they get there they may spend an uh, archaeological season which could be a few weeks or months or it could be longer it could be a year or two uh, depending on the funding and depending on what they're looking at and they may find nothing they need to be paid to find nothing like how many people are sports fans and their favorite team, none of which I'll name, even though I'm in Minnesota, fail to win at the 
the the big uh, you know the the whether it be the World Series or the Super Bowl, everybody has this idea that well, they don't just dump or start a brand new team. Here you are with archaeological work, and I believe that's the first time I've ever made a sports reference in my life like that. Just I'm for gl- everyone, I'm glad I'm glad you did it here on the Secret Teachings. Oh my gosh, dear diary, and. So here we are with an archaeological field that is pressed into if you want to be, and I've heard it from archaeologists myself, I've heard it from a number of people who are associated with archaeologists that if they don't find things that fit their university's needs, don't bring, I've heard it from Michael Cremo personally, that again, archaeologists, young ones, the, the optimistic point on this is that the narrative of Everyone was in a loincloth, the out-of-Africa theory, the idea that hominids at one point, that Australopithecus, uh, uh, that the different forms of early, uh, the, the Darwinian theory of evolution is just fallen apart. And the idea of this narrative of, yeah, the little tiny rocks that are sitting on top of the giant cymatic polygonal blocks were all built by the Incas in 400 years. That's, a, that's what happened. And, yeah, the Egyptians brought and, and they were shipping rocks for thousands of miles at multi-tons. And they were just, re- you know, n- none of this, this paradigm is slowly, there is a joke that, archaeology or that the the thought process of a theory changes with the death of one archaeologist at a time and i don't think with social i don't want to say social media with the electronic connections that we have now it's not like you can sit on one thing anymore Uh, right now the latest i part one of the things i mentioned in my book is dr melissa sellu of uh, I went to a lecture that she did at the uh, McAllister University in St. Paul, and the lecture was about antiquity theft and also about ethics and antiquity. And one of the things that made a big impression on me was she would not name whom, but she had a associate, a respected college professor who has since passed on. He kept a Red Sea, a, a Dead Sea Scroll. He had one in his desk drawer to his own amusement and research for 40 years. And the point about it is that's that's post uh, Younger Dryas antediluvian flood myth. There's a document that references a culture and time in the last 4,000 years, 3,000 years that has ties uh, to that. That's that's old, but it's recent history. But it was in the possession of one professor and unresearched, unlooked at. And here we're talking about, hey, guys, I'm sorry you missed that there's all this engineered soil everywhere, and I'm sorry you threw out the bones. Can we remember where the dump site was? And that's happened, where they've gone back to sites where they're like, oh, my gosh, they threw everything out of the temple, and we think it got dumped in this general direction based on the field notes. Can we revisit that? And that's happening. And younger archaeologists are, at least from what I'm hearing, hearing things about Huelaco in northern Mexico where the dating for the human site is 300,000 years old minimum. And it's becoming these old, the minute we started logically digging from the 1800s on, there are, are anatomically correct humans that are hundreds of thousands or millions of years old not following 
the theory of what was very recent, the 1850s, you know, the Darwinian look at things where we don't hold on. By the way, as a side note, we do not hold on to a single phone like, hey, my 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 contract's up on my phone. I'm going to get the latest one because I have two year ago phone or last year's phone or this one does one more thing I don't use and I need it. Yet we hold on to theories uh, only in the world of our history. Do we treat it the absolute exact opposite of how we treat every other technology in our life? We have held on to dogma that has become mystified religious uh, activity practically when it comes to our and, and this goes to your point about doing shows, doing conferences. How do you monetize this? How do you stay in this business? Do you always have to come up with something new? Yet in the world of monolithic education, uh, it, is, it is a problem, is that apparently uh, holding on to 150-year-old dead guys who didn't think women should vote for the most part, let's hold on to their theories as long as we possibly can and base every quarter to $250,000 degree on these theories and not change a thing. And you better put it back in the ground. Archaeologists literally putting things back in the ground because they have found something that doesn't fit the theory that they were supposed to maintain. Well, how, mu how, much, public how much of that is because it would just cost a lot of money to redo the courses and re-educate the professors and reprint the books? And, 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 and in reality, those are the kind of things that happen. And it's almost no different with the shows where you have a fan base, and I can't speak for the people on the shows or on a, on a, on a tour circuit. The reality is that people are also... And I think they should be entertained about our past. They should be excited about it. It should be more than just watching an episode of your of whatever your favorite. I'm just as guilty as everyone. Everyone has their fictional shows that they like. But that's the be, having someone be able to tell you whether it's the same thing for five or ten or twenty years or longer that they can tell you about a shared create through telling of a, of a story like we've done in every tribal culture on the planet and in folklore to be able to sit down or stand before an audience of dozens or hundreds or thousands and be able to share a story of antiquity that was untold. It's not about uh, a biblical story or it's not, or it is, but it's with the discovery of something that is no longer a discovery, but it's something that they've shared through this lecture series that they're doing or through a story that's being told at a conference. It's, it's okay to do that. What I think, to your point and your frustration, too, and, and, and it's shared, is that we create paradigms and are not open to the facts themselves, which is why we have places like Gobekli Tepe, which is 5% dug up and yet on the alternative and in the and mind you mainstream archaeology took 44 years and Klaus Schmidt's done amazing work I did not know him uh I am not I I'm not at all associated with anyone at the original team I think they've done incredible work but here is one of at least 6 tepes in Turkey that show great antiquity totally destroy 
the established narrative, yet 5% of it's dug up. And we've already established that they were temples, that it was obviously, again, tied like a like an anchor at the bottom of the deepest ocean to the idea that, well, uh, everyone was nomadic then. Well, wait, wait a minute. Are we bipolar and psychotic? You just said as alternative researchers that you don't want to go with the standard narrative. So why are you taking Gobekli Tepe for the alternative crowd and tying it to the fact that, well, everyone at least 12 to 16,000 years ago were nomadic, but, but that's not what these giant polygonal it's structures cognitive, are saying. cognitive dissonance is what it sounds like. It, right, right. So you, you have a site where you're saying, okay, well, they built these, you're, the alternative, not throwing everybody in a boat, but the mainstream and the alternative are agreeing, well, these were special temples and places, and they were clearly associating them with the night sky, and they were clearly associating them with... Uh, so right away, there's this mashed template into uh, both storylines that, that they marry together well, whether they want to or not, that... Uh, well, obviously, every, why are you assuming that they were nomadic? Why are you assuming that this is even built by one group? Why aren't you assuming within that period that dynastic, not Egyptians, but dynastic as in multi-millennial societies adapted and changed that site? We see it at Easter Island. And I'm not saying that we know of all the cultures on Easter Island, but what we have is the oldest statues on Easter Island— were built with the hardest, and they were the stones, and they were built the most uh, complex, while later you have Easter Island Moai statues being built out of the softest stones. Here we are at Gobekli Tepe with monolithic pit. Mind you, 5% of the site. There is significant monolithic stones buried over the course of, I think it's, more than a square, uh, a few square kilometers. You have this massive site where 95% of the pillars are buried, yet they have found quarry areas. But logic might might assume that the quarry you find are from later dynastic people that use the site, which is why there's basically river rock stacked against, to some eyewitnesses' accounts, very well-built, monolithic, 25, 30-ish foot tall pillars, yet some of them may be mimics. They may have been added to or repaired so like, by later people. Like Stonehenge or Rapa Nui-like Egypt, where there are a lot of pyramids that are kind of dilapidated. They're structurally insufficient compared to the Great Pyramids. That They were built by people who didn't fully understand the construction, but who were only mimicking. Oh, absolutely that. Exactly that. Well, that and seems that's, that seems really obvious then. It, it, you would think. You would think yet, that, yeah. Uh, but here we are. Do you know that? So it made the news. It was just a few months. It was pre our sci-fi movie that we're living in right now in the last few months. But I believe by fall of last year, there were articles talking about how people were upset that at Gobekli Tepe, they were already building a tourist center and a parking lot on top of unexcavated siding. So 
Great. So they're going to have those little pamphlets there that'll tell you all about the site, all about the people that worked and lived there and built it with 5% complete and okay. with the visiting center built on top of it. Uh, yeah, you pick the 5% of any of your favorite books and tell me you got the story down if you rip out that, that 5%. <laughs> well, you know what it's like? Have you ever watched the, the dancing uh, bear video with the basketball players? No. Okay, so this is like an exercise in perception, and there have been a, a, a number of these made over the years now um, from companies in Europe that have made them for commercials. I went to film school, and they showed us this in film school, and it's about perception. So in this particular video, Jared, they tell you to watch this basketball team, and one team I think is dressed in white. I haven't seen it for a while, but one team is dressed in white, and they say, count how many times this team passes the basketball. So that's your perception. It's kind of like saying, hey, everybody had a loincloth. Everybody was nomadic. This is our history. And then you count the basketball passes. And at the end of the video, um, our teacher in film school said, okay, so how many times did they pass the basketball? And you count, it's like 27 times or something. And then they ask you, okay, now, did you see anything else in the video? And like, no, just some guys throwing the basketball around. And then, and I know anybody who's watched this, that they, they, they know that it's, it's so bizarre, but it's all about perception. They say, okay, well, did you see the guy in like, I think he was in a bear costume. Others have been like gorilla costumes, but this guy dressed up like an animal walks into <laughs> the middle of the game, kind of does a stupid dance and then leaves the screen. And you do not see it. I mean, I told you, so if you watch it, you're going to see it. Anybody watches, they're going to see it. But the first time you watch it, your perception is trained to count the passes of that basketball. And you completely miss this guy in a costume who runs across the screen. And that's kind of how any field of study is, especially when you're looking for evidence to confirm theories that are predetermined where you're putting stuff back on the ground, throwing stuff off a cliff, throwing stuff in the ocean, pulverizing and destroying it because it won't look good on your mantle, it won't look good next to your degree, it won't please the university, it won't please the Smithsonian. You're getting rid of all that history because you're looking for things to confirm theories rather than trying to do the opposite where we're looking for theoretical evidence of whatever and then forming the theories around the evidence. But it's all, to my point, about training your eyes and the perception that those students are given in school before they go out into the professional world. So, of course, it's not just money and prestige. Of course, they're going to be looking right over the things that are really obvious, like the reusing of those sites and the, the, the engineered soil. I think perception plays a major, major part in this, Jared. Uh, absolutely. It's, you see what you're looking for. You find what you're looking for. You don't, it, it, it's, it was pointed out that, which it is completely almost off the table finally, but the idea of this land bridge, it's not that some nomadic people did not make it across the frozen Bering Straits into America for the, but the, the pre, and there are code words, by the way, this is a good point to bring up one of them, prehistory. I love that. That's like, like George Carlin's pre-boarding. What am I going to get on the plane before I get on the plane? prehistory yeah right and so we have what has been labeled for no reason 
and again, it's not that it's a bad name. It's just they call it the Clovis people. That they're that you know we're finding these indications that people have been in North America for tens of thousands of years, but the whole land bridge story was that well they've been here maybe thirteen thousand years and they were called the Clovis people. Well, so you go to archaeological sites that have been dug on the coast. And there is a point, and and Michael Cremo talks about this in Forbidden Archaeology, and I think Graham Hancock talks about this also, is that, well, and and I I think even, uh, there's a few others, but a lot, not trying to name everybody, but the reality is they only dig so far, and even though they're not at bedrock, which for those of you who don't do archaeological work, part of knowing if you've finished with a site to know all the layers of society or history that's there is you try to dig a site within reason down to bedrock because frequently the bedrock in a lot of locations is close enough that maybe you are going 40 or 60 feet, but it's still a reasonable level to get to what would then obviously the society did not go below bedrock. So you've hit the lowest grade that would indicate somebody had been there and each layer you break through, you know, you might find something new, another layer of a fire pit or something that's datable through some sort of carbon 14 or OSL dating or something. But in the case of the Clovis, I think it's really important that, uh, well, we don't dig below this level. Well, why not? Well, because nobody was here. That's how insane this is. That is complete that we, ignorance. Uh, and and this is science that, well, and I won't get into another science right now. That's It's like we live in the dark ages. It's terrifying how simplistic this is looked at. And it's Ex- not... Well, except it, except it, instead of being afraid of science, now we use science as a means by which to stifle investigation. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it's statistics, it's uh, mathematical literacy, it's observation, it's the critical thinking, it's that Greek process of, are you teaching people what to think or are you teaching them how to think? Right, how right. How to process, and, and it's not done. That critical thinking skill is, an, is absent. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with, well, look at the net net. You, they just, they, people frequently trust what they're told. But more importantly, when it comes to what should be a critical thinking job like archaeology, which again, it's an interdisciplinary process. You can't send out an anthropologist to look at geological evidences. What are you doing? If you don't have a background in geology, extensively. And I don't mean you have to be a mineralogist to the point of, you know, working for a mining company, perhaps. But if you're dealing with structures that are mainly built out of stone, and you also do not have a construction background, it would be really easy for you to look at the pebbles and boulders stacked on top of many Incan and Mayan and Egyptian sites and go, yeah, one group of people built that when you would have to be in a coma to go from hundreds of tons of laser, well, not laser, but finely polished and sighted polygonal construction to basically, again, rocks and boulders 
to finish your walls to put a thatched roof on because that's the paradigm for Gobekli Tepe is they're doing these artist impressions of people in loincloths and <laughs> yeah those are so and, funny and you know what they went through the trouble to chisel out which from at least the five percent they've dug up very beautiful complex carved megalithic uh you know t pillars but they kind of threw it to the wind and just cut some logs and chopped the branches off and that's the roof they didn't have any idea about shingles uh, probably looked like a Viking. But, but they got uh, they got the basic lodge. foundation down. They just didn't know how to do the roofing. And then they got done with those giant megalithics. And, and at this point, there's been I I can't remember if he was Israeli or if uh, Turkish. Uh, there's a scientist that just made the news that they found the first isosceles triangle within the structures of the pillars. That they're they're finally seeing some higher level math at within Gobe- the structure at Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. Yes, yes, between uh, one of the pits, one of the sets of pillars are showing a... And there's a series of things that suggest that it's not accidental. So it's not just, hey, I found... Yet again, I found another Fibonacci sequence because I scaled it up or down. (laughs) And it's yet again associated with this star system because, well, you know, simple people look up and see it. So they built these really big, beautiful, gorgeous pillars but the best they could do based on your artist interpretation is wear a loincloth and lean to tree trunks. Well, that makes know, is it, their finishing. It makes perfect sense. J- Jared Murphy is our guest this evening. We're going to skip this break because this is really fascinating. Real quick before we go further, though, where can listeners get the book and what is the name of the book again? It's not aliens. Worse, it's us discovering our lost history. It can be found at Amazon, and if you would like to get a signed copy, and I'm not pre-signing, I'm waiting. If you order, you will get a personal signed copy from me at notaliens.com. And I have a YouTube channel, Not Aliens. Uh, My website, I just got going. The goal is to direct everyone to listen to these shows, and of course, if they'd like to purchase a signed copy, but that's where you can find me. I called... I called Jared, for those of you who did not listen to Lighting the Void when I hosted last week, I called Jared the ancient human civilization theorist. He is our resident ancient human civilization theorist. So you got to put your hands up like Giorgio, and we'll mess your hair up, and we'll make you a meme. I'm going to have... I, I will have to work on the hair then. Yeah, I don't work. remotely have the branding <laughs> in the hair yet. You, well, that's what you, you need the hair. I think that's really what uh, what does it for Giorgio. Listen, by the way, I like Giorgio. I met him. He's a cool guy. He did a promo for me. Um, most of the people I've met from Ancient Aliens, they're nice. They're very nice, kind people. They're very. A lot of them are very intelligent. Maybe you agree or disagree as a listener, but I don't have a beef with these people. I'm just simply saying that what they're doing, it's beneficial to them. It's profitable to them and to the networks. But we're missing a lot of stuff along the way. And I, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not even an amateur archaeologist, but what I do is I do a lot of like analysis of patterns on the secret teachings. I deal a lot in symbols and things like that. And one of the things that I've noticed um, over the years is the usage of language to confuse and to manipulate some intentionally, some otherwise. And I went to, uh, I went to see Graham Hancock one year at contact in the desert, Jared. 
and uh, I'm sitting down in his lecture, and I've always liked Graham Hancock. The guy just is is brilliant, in my opinion. So I'm listening to him talk, and he said something that I had been saying for years, but I never heard you know anybody else say it. He said, look, they told us that Atlantis was not a real place because they couldn't find reference to Atlantis in any old text. And he said, this is like one of the simplest things to understand. They didn't call it Atlantis in other cultures. They had different names for it. So when they tell you Atlantis didn't exist, okay, sure, Atlantis didn't exist, but there are like 30 other names for Atlantis which are, you know, textbook, like physical writings in a sense that show that something like Atlantis existed. And that, that, that level of uh, psychological and, and verbal um, and, and literary uh, analysis is something that I think is very overlooked because when someone says, well, this doesn't exist, we give a name, we apply a name to it, it has a description. Well, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist by some other name. And a lot of the things that we think about and that we talk about in relationship to aliens and ancient civilizations, it's all part of this, as you've been talking about, this dogmatic structure. So if someone was to say as an archaeologist or as an author, as a researcher, we don't have evidence of X, Y, Z. Well, you might not have evidence of X, Y, Z, but you might have evidence of A, B, C, which is the same thing as X, Y, Z. And so when you start looking uh, like I've watched another example real quick. I watched this documentary one time. Uh, you, you even said scaled down, and I, that's what made me think of it. They scale down into these small models and then say, look, we figured it out. I, I find it so insulting. Like, it's entertaining, but I find it insulting to my intelligence. I watched this documentary in Rapa Nui once, Jared, and they go in and they, ha- they have this theory about the Moai, that they walk them with ropes down the hill from where they cut them out of the, the stone, right? Or the rock or the, the, the cliff there. I'm not exactly sure where, where they did it. But I watched this documentary. They're walking this thing down, and they get like halfway down, and the thing falls over, and they can't get it back up because it's too heavy. And they show, they're like, well, there's another one over there, one of these Easter Island heads that's laying on its side, so that must mean they dropped it too, and they decided that after spending perhaps years carving the thing, they just dropped it, thought, we can't pick it back up, let's go back and carve another one, right? So they dropped this thing, and the conclusion of the documentary was that even though they dropped it, this is, this is how they moved the structure. And they said... By the way, um, this is only one-eighth the size of the real thing. And I just like wow. sat, sat there like one-eighth the size. You still dropped it, and yet your conclusion is they were able to move it like you couldn't move it at a much larger scale. Like, how do these people not lose their funding and their degrees? Like, you should, be, you should have your degree revoked if you're parroting this kind of stuff. This is not intelligent. This is not professional. This is pseudo-archaeology, pseudo-science, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, no, well, you're, but it's, you're making observational points where uh, it, it, it seems like that's the logical conclusion if you were using common sense, and yet to justify the program that's in this archaic system, it's used as a justification for well, we're maintain we're song and dancing the same paradigm that we've been doing. It's like, well, there's a lot of great inventions, but 
you know, we're going to stick with, uh, you know, the rope and stick. And it's not, it, it's not remotely feasible that that's what happened. And then if you can't, in a scientific method, you, you're not reproducing the exact, you're not duplicating it at all. And it's always to scale. Well, if it's to scale, why don't you start cutting that piece of stone with a toothbrush if you're only going to use a hundred ton block? <laughs> you know, if you're or start with you know start with a fifty pound block, well, you get toothpicks. You know, so start chiseling. If and, if you if you're just joining us too, Jared Murphy is with us. He's the author of "It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us." And we're coming up on the end of the show here, but I just want to let you know you're listening to the Secret Teachings on the Fringe FM. You can email us at rd gable at yahoo.com give us your feedback on the show tonight check us out at the secret teachings.info jared go ahead yeah i think it's it's a very exciting um that our history is something that we don't know it is discoverable it's all of our history it, it does involve things that we didn't get a chance to talk about tonight like genetic memory that we frequently uh don't understand yet. There's a well, lot let's, of let's, new information. Let's do, let's do this then. Uh, I know you have so much information. Can you give me a quick answer on this? And then I want to give you an open floor maybe to talk about the genetic memory. What would, 42. Yes. <laughs> what would, what would a um, complete fossil record look like? And then I want you to take the floor and go into the genetic memory and anything else in the last few minutes here. Oh, that's brutal. What a, a complete. So here's Is a it possible? To... Is it even possible? What do we define as so, complete? Here's why it's not possible. In the last 37 plus years, on average, we've been discovering 5,000 new species a year. And yes, many of them are bacterial and fungal and microscopic, but they're also big things fishes, uh, birds animals, reptiles. There are many living things today that are not tiny little bacteria. But if you just compound, if you if you just take, if we round it down to 30 years and compound the number of species of things that we did not know existed on this planet that are living and we are still discovering new things to this day, we have, it's problematic because we aren't even aware of what's living here with us now that we are worried about extinction when we're not aware of everything alive. And then when it comes to the fossil record, I've watched archaeologists, I've watched some very entertaining in-person lectures where they said how to become a fossil. And that some, some really great, uh, uh, you know, people that are pretty smart are, they try to give you the exact circumstances for you to fall in the bog or end up in a, a layer of sand that might just, if you're lucky, preserve you to be a part of a fossil record uh, thousands, tens of thousands, let alone millions of years in the future. It is the rare uh, thing that that is to become. So we don't have a complete fossil record and how it might look at the rate we discover species now would be a very thick and rich book that is yet. And I think it's not impossible for us through nanoarchaeology to in the dust and the bits to find uh, 
right now it seems inconceivable to find a petrified bacteria. Uh, and we find things in amber, for instance. It's Think Jurassic Park. People think of the mosquito with the blood in it, and we extract the DNA from whatever animal that it was sucking on, and boom, we have Jurassic Park, the movie. It's kind of the same thing. We might start learning about things in our past that are even as small as bacteria and viruses, uh, which does happen through Antarctica and Arctic Circle research, but it could be larger creatures that have, for the most part, become bone chips or powder. And in the future, that might be easier for right now. It sounds like going to Mars, but we're talking about going to Mars. So it's a possibility that we will be able to start reestablishing a more complete fossil record morphology just we didn't have a choice we look we'd look at a bone and we'd say well this is our ancestor and then you end up with a lot of people debating about well this is in the human record uh, australopithecus uh or you know just pick another one you know that that well this is a human or it's close to a human what because of the shape of the bone i mean i it, that's not a good way to it, it was and is a resource for us but it has its limits and soon uh, extrapolating ancient or petrified dna might not be unrealistic and even if it's just a very ancient bone that hasn't petrified that's obviously even more realistic but it's currently difficult for us to do so so what you're saying is it's it's like basically archaeology today is like tinder you look at it you're like she's hot she's not she's hot she's not that's basically what it is isn't it i don't like that piece of evidence throw that bone out hey look that statue would look good in my bedroom that's what it feels like yeah a bit like uh you know that and on top of it it's like well and and again this is very important but a very brilliant fill-in-the-blank researcher spends, you know, 27 years piecing back together a pot at the entrance to Disney World of the past, but they never excavate Disney World. Right. That, <laughs> that, yes. That. Ah, uh, oh, you know, that's happening again. I was 44 thinking... years, and I'm not knocking the people because there's money and resources, but. After 44 years, we have 5% of Gobekli Tepe dug up as one example. and That seems unacceptable. And, 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 and then you have dynastic people, like you said, taking over Egypt, where we know the structure under a very famous one is the, as the Step Pyramid at Saqqara has a very, very—it's as if two different sets of people entirely showed up. It's— basically like someone built a model T on top of a space shuttle is what the interior of the step pyramid looks like in construction and quality compared to the giant crappy mud brick pyramid that's on top of it. And yet it is said even by mainstream Egyptologists that, well, 90% of Egypt is still buried, which is why, when Sarah Parkak of, you know, the Global Explorer program of her company, Global Explorer, when they when she won the TED Prize and used satellite imaging to basically do super badass LIDAR, except they did it with satellites and they did it with the, the color between the stones and the sand, they were able to map extensive amounts of what's under the sand 
yet hence proving further the complexity of ancient Cairo, ancient Egypt. And those are just pieces of steps that we could be taking to be more realistic about what we don't know and what we could know if we were just willing to be patient with the archaeologists and the teams they do have. If all they have is the resources to go at something to 5%, uh, there are a lot of tech oligarchs, and they are getting the name oligarch, by the way, and that's for another reason. The reality is there is enough money available that it is worth the human endeavor of our future and our past to treat our past more like a search and rescue than a search and recovery. And maybe that's one of those resources where we get more money is that digging up uh, a site uh, holistically with a multidisciplinary uh, view where you bring in uh, astrophysicists, where you bring in forensic geology, where you bring in uh, structural engineers and you look at this for what it is. And if you can't sift through it and find it or understand it, you sift through it and keep it. And it'll have to get studied later. But in, but exploring a site uh, for those that not for a, a, a narrative of a, uh, of a theory, but for the facts. And if we just take some of the first half of our show and we use that footprint for future archaeology, we would have a very different priority map to discover our past. Not throwing out recent cultures, not disrespecting uh, societies that have been around hundreds or thousands of years, which is, in our minds as humans, a very long time in our short lives, but being able to get back to understanding how complex we once were and on the evidences of these unexplained encounters with high technology craft and or uh, different looking possible humans we might have a better idea of where we are today. Maybe something subconscious says it's scary that we have all these incredible structures, all this incredible history, all this incredible stuff that's been dug up. And I go into my car and I plug in my phone and I can't get it to connect to my computer and the wire's messed up and this is the third Apple wire I've bought this year because it just doesn't stay together. But yet we have these incredible structures that have lasted the, the, the test of time. And maybe subconsciously we think, well, they didn't survive. So we're definitely not going to survive. You know, or, or worse, those structures are so big, they clearly survived through multiple catastrophes. They were millennial in their, in their rules, in their, in their, in their lifespans, possibly uh, in, those, in those structures they planned for natural disasters that even they couldn't control. And you're looking at a society that could stand for hundreds of thousands or thousands or, or longer. And that is terrifying to think that with all of their technology, like you said, the idea that they didn't make it. And, and, and here's the thing. I don't think it's a surprise to our current this, this time round, I don't think that this is a surprise to existing militaries, existing governments, and or a branch of them, because they do have modern underground facilities. They do have modern uh, transportation ways that are outside of our uh, general public's knowledge base, as they should. But at the same time, 
as I would think that there is a segment of our uh, government that would run into some of these ancient structures based on what we've even discussed, pre-Younger Dryas, post-Younger Dryas, pre-flood, post-flood, pre-catastrophe means that there was a catastrophe. And those societies, besides what we haven't touched this time around, is all those rock-cut ruins and underground cities where there's a good possibility that our our current governments, part, part of what the big conspiracy might be is just simply that they know that, yeah, uh, some asteroid or meteor could hit us, but and they may not know the schedule, but they're where they could be very well in the know that where there are ancient structures that show that these people were prepared, are prepared, have continued to call this place home. And at some level of government, the readiness for some of the human race to survive is a possibility. But that's, you know, we're we're speculating outside of our scope currently, but it's terrifying. And I think, like you said, to the point of where people could be in their mindset, it's a lot easier for a segment of the population to say, look, uh, well, we know we know the Great Pyramid was a tomb. OK, but no one ever found a body. Yeah, but there was a sarcophagus. Right. Well, and you it? can you can see it from space. So obviously it, it deters grave robbers. I'm buried here, but don't look here. And jazz hands. Hey, that's that's the best way to conceal something, Jared, in plain sight. And that it's it's not it's it's not aliens. It's us. Yes. Discovering our lost history. It's 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 just something that when you talked about in the few minutes we had left, I mentioned genetic. uh, Yeah, you've got maybe maybe like 90 seconds if you can do it. I know that's a that's a load. Uh, well, so some Harvard researchers in 2008 put a 50,000 word book on some, uh, using, creating ones and zeros on actual, uh, at the cellular level below that. And they've expanded that process. And so the idea of you out there having deja vu or having a past memory of what you think is a past life could be a stored shared genetic memory. And that's something we'll have to get into one of these days. Or sooner than later. That would make another really great show. I know we have so much to talk about. You're like me. What you're knowledgeable on, you talk and talk and talk, and I'm I'm hinging on every word. So Jared Murphy, our guest tonight, we're definitely going to have you back on, Jared. If you have any uh, comments or questions, you can email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. Check us out at www.thesecretteachings.info. You can subscribe there to the archive, get the montages as well and my digital books. It's all part of the subscription package, or you can buy the book separately. If you'd like to check out Jared's stuff, it's Not Aliens. That's the book. It's Not Aliens. Worse, it's us. And where can they get that book again? It would be on Amazon, or you can get it from my website. I will sign a copy for you if you go there at notaliens.com. Notaliens.com. I'm going to get a copy signed by Jared. You should, too. It's not aliens. Worse, it's us. Notaliens.com. Again, rdgable at yahoo.com. Jared, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. We'll have Jared back on, hopefully in the very near future. Don't forget about Fringe Fest, thefringefest.com. Coming up the weekend of Halloween, we have a bunch of amazing speakers 
at least the ones I know of, from Karen Dahlman to Clyde Lewis to Harold Kaltz to our good friend Jordan Maxwell. They'll all be there. Elena Freeland will be there as well. You can get a copy of, uh, or rather copy, you can get tickets at thefringefest.com. And we're giving away two tickets tonight, too. I do it at the end of the show. Email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. First two emails, you get two pairs of tickets. Stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you on the next broadcast. Go check out Jared Murphy's stuff. It's pretty incredible.